This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Hello, everyone. This is episode 85 of the Travel Writing World podcast. And joining me today is Marcia DeSanctis, and we're talking about A Hard Place to Leave, her new collection of stories that covers the last decade of her travel writing career. In addition to her book, we also talk about finding one's writing voice, the differences between stories and essays, and the difficult task of putting together and pitching a collection of stories. I love having thoughtful, meditative conversations like these, and I hope you enjoy this one. Anyway, before we start the episode today, just a note to say, please tell your friends about the podcast, leave a review on the Apple Podcast app or whichever podcasting app you use, and support the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com forward slash support. Lastly, to stay up to date with travel, nature, and place writing news, join the hundreds of other subscribers and sign up for Genius Loci, my free monthly email roundup of news and links at jeremybassetti.com. That's with two S's and two T's. A new roundup goes out on the first of the month. So now, here is Marsha DeSanctis. Marsha, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Jeremy. I'm thrilled to be speaking with you today about your your life and your new book, A Hard Place to Leave, Stories from a Restless Life, which is a collection of essays from the last decade or so of your professional writing career. Exactly. It is a collection of essays from the last decade, um, which is the only decade of my writing (laughs) career, actually. Um, but, uh, But some of the stories are really memoir. And those were my first travel essays, actually, because I was at home with small kids and I wasn't really traveling anywhere. So I was diving into um, I was diving into the past. I was diving into copious journals and diaries and story notes that I took back when I was a, a working journalist uh, in Europe decades ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you you brought that up um, about this being your your only decade of, of your writing career because. As you know, in, in the book's introduction, um, you came to uh, writing, professional writing, travel writing later in life, um, about 10, 11, 12 years ago. Um, so maybe a, as a way to kind of like give us some background, um, can you tell us what you were doing before you started writing? And then how did you land on writing as your new career or your new path? Sure. Uh, I think by accident in a way, uh, by accident and luck and, and hard work is, is the, the short answer, but the long answer is a a little more complicated. So I was a television journalist for my entire, say 20 year career after college until I moved out of New York city to the country. I was a producer for ABC news. I worked for Barbara Walters most of my career. So I I've met a lot of celebrities and world leaders, and it was a fascinating life to have, actually. Um, and I 
studied writing in college and always really thought I was a writer. I always was an observer. I was always a little bit in the background um, and always kept, always was writing stories from the time, from kindergarten. Mm -hmm. You know, my kindergarten report card is, you know, she has a great imagination. (laughs) Um, And, and always amusing to, to find those things in, you know, in your parents' collection of stuff. But, uh, but I moved out of New York City. So I lived in Paris for a couple of years and I worked, uh, I worked as a journalist. I worked actually for 60 minutes for CBS News for 60 minutes and did a lot of traveling around Eastern Europe, which was in turmoil at the time, uh, was 1989 to 1993. And of course, 89 was the year that the Berlin Wall came tumbling down. Um, and so I went back to New York and worked in television and for various reasons, mostly because my husband is a sculptor who works in very, very large format. We just decided uh, that the time had kind of come to, uh, to move to our big wide open space, a couple hours out of New York city in rural Connecticut. And I was out of excuses. I was I kind of, oh, now I'm really going to be a writer. And I wasn't working for the first time in my life, which was awful. And I kind of thought I was going to die at first. I was so, uh, I was so uh, disoriented, I guess, is the best way to put it. And then I started writing a lot of stories. I wrote dispatches from moving to the country. They were sort of Sex in the city, like dispatches about being, you know, sort of green acres and what am I going to do with my high heels and things like that. <laughs> uh, and I really didn't find an audience for them. I didn't know how to be a writer. I didn't know how to send in a story. I didn't know how to write to an editor. And I, I just didn't know how to how to be this thing. And so I went to graduate school in my late 40s. I just realized that all these dreams of being a writer were not really going to happen because I did, I just didn't know how to be a writing professional. I, I, I guess I thought that some angel would appear on my shoulder and carry my stories to the top editors of the New York times and say, mm-hmm. Oh, how, you know, we've been waiting for you. And I, <laughs> I didn't know how to be a professional. And I think since then there's such a proliferation of, of just, places, just online resources and places where you can kind of learn how to pitch a story, query an editor, things like that. But, but I wasn't really aware of that. Um, in a way, it looks kind of entitled on my part, but it was also just ignorance. I had been in television, which is a very collaborative medium, and I had lots of contacts in television, but I just didn't know people in, in magazine journalism mm-hmm. or newspaper journalism or travel journalism or anything like that. Um, and so I got a master's degree in foreign policy at, uh, at Tufts University's the school of law and diplomacy called Fletcher. And while I was there, I had some, a kind of a midlife crisis that I ended up writing about for, well, I wasn't sure who, but I wrote a, a story about a a kind of a, a scandalous thing that, that happened to me or that I experienced. And and I started sending that around. I, I asked 
everybody I knew. Do you know anybody? Do you know anybody? And a friend of mine said, well, you know, I kind of know who the features editor at Vogue is and I'll send it to her. And, and really overnight I had, I had a, I had a a career. I had Mm -hmm. a paying career. I should say that after I went to Fletcher, I wrote a bunch of stories about international development. I had written my thesis on piracy in the the Horn of Africa and the Gulf of Guinea, um, which was, which was about to be a big thing. Um, Piracy in U.S. national security. And I was Again, I was writing these op-eds for the New York Times um, and thinking, wow, you know, I have a master's degree. They're going to publish my story. But of course, I had no other credibility. I was a producer for ABC News. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't have any bona fides in foreign policy or in, you know, piracy or in, you know, international negotiation and things like that. So I threw all those pieces on the Huffington Post, was very, very grateful um, for the fact that they were they were published at all. Um, but then I just decided to write about this experience and was published in Vogue. And one thing led to another and that story was published. And the next thing you know, I had an editor who responded to my queries, responded to my ideas. And, and that's kind of how it happened. And then I started writing these other stories or, or working on these other stories that had been based on memoir. And because I had now people that were responding to my queries, I found places to, to put them. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's how it happened in a circuitous way. But I think, I think in a way you, you just need one person to you need to grab one person's attention and it's always luck and connections to some extent, mm-hmm. but it's also a little bit of fearlessness. And I did feel that I was almost 50 years old. This is what I always wanted to be. And I just didn't have any time to waste. Right. So I would send this story out and I'd think really for the first time in my life. So they think I'm a pest. So they think I'm a jerk. So they think I'm pushy. I just thought, so what? Because I was setting myself up for a lot of rejection. But on the other hand, I was very aware of the passing time. And, um, and so I just said, well, so what? If right. they reject, I just pack up my wares and move on to the next person. Mm-hmm. And I think that amount of the amount of rejection that I experienced or the amount of fearlessness slash rejection slash resilience was not something I could have done in my twenties. Actually. I don't think, I think I would have been very, very easily defeated. And I would have said, forget it. I'm not ever going to be a writer. You know? So I, I think it took a life experience and a certain degree of, of age and kind of awareness of the passing time to say, I don't care. I'm just going to keep going. Mm-hmm. Having calloused skin is, I think, an important part of being a freelance writer. Right, you need to to be able to endure and withstand the the rejections and the and the, and the critiques that that are lobbed uh, at you continually. Um, I, I should just note here that the the scandal 
uh, to which you referred um, uh, in in your what you, you what you describe as a midlife crisis is something that you do cover in the book. You mentioned that in the introduction, and you, the piece that you um, wrote about for Vogue de- describing this experience is is um, reproduced in the book, which is uh, very interesting. And uh, that's where I started um, in your book. I went directly first to that essay because you refer to it in in the introduction, and I think it helps give a lot of context to uh, what you're you're describing here. Um, but in the introduction as well, you said TV journalist, producer, you gave that up. Um, I guess you went, to, you, you were in France. Um, you came back, you taught French for, for a period of time. I did. I did. <laughs> You're kind of bouncing yeah, around. Fun, actually. Uh, you enrolled in the master's program. Uh, you had this kind of crisis and in the book, you kind of walk us through those stages. But, um, at, at some point in the introduction, you said, um, then you found your voice, right? And so people say that, um, you know, one of the hardest things about writing is finding your voice, right? Um, and I was mm-hmm. wondering, like, after, you know, all these trials and tribulations and having what appears to be a very successful career in your first stage of your life, um, you know, what does your voice sound like to you? And, and like, how did you know that you, you found it at this point? It's such an interesting question, and I suppose the answer is always going to be vague because it's a little weird to talk about your own voice and what that is. But so the scandal that that I refer to in in the book and that I wrote about in Vogue, and I still get mail on it every at least once a week. <laughs> uh, it was I I basically fell in love with another man. I was uh, very happily married, but I, I just fell hard for somebody in my, in my graduate school class. And it's interesting that this is the kind of the piece where I found my voice because I felt like midlife was a very, it was a very big reality disruptor. And I felt like being 50 years old or being 48 or 49 was a place where I could now look at things reflectively and I could look at the urgency of the of the years that are left to live. Mm-hmm. And so I feel that in in a lot of my stories I do reflect on how things, you know, I reflect on things that were in the past. I very often refer to my father, my childhood, my, um, my youth outside of Boston, my, my friends growing up, my experience in, you know, in school or in college. I, I've, I'm very rooted in my past, but I do think that, that kind of, I think my writing uses that past to to make sense of the presence of the present and to um, and to almost be be prepared for what's to come. I think it's I think a lot of these I've always looked at life kind of from the corner of my eye. I've always listened a lot. I've always paid attention to the way things, you know, the way things feel Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the way things, um, you know, the, 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 
the way I, the way I sense things. And so I think that, that having a midlife crisis was kind of a great place to start (laughs) a great place to, to start, to start a writing career because it wasn't just I'm 50, I'm going to start a life. It's that I've had this life changing thing. I need to, I need to find a way to, to go forward with a certain kind of sense and a certain kind of plan and a certain kind of deliberateness. And it always helps to write things down. So I don't know if that made any sense. No, it does, especially in the context of what you mentioned earlier about, you know, writing about piracy and and not having the the bona fides, you know, not not having the, you know, kind of like the the CV with all the um kind of accolades and the experiences uh in in terms of foreign policy assignments and those types of things, but you know, when you think about it, you're using, you know, the language here to describe this, you're saying that um, you know, you're rooted in your your past. And if there's anything that you're an expert in is we're all experts of our own experiences, right? And it sounds like that you were kind of doubling down or or leveraging the expertise that you have in your your own life or your own experience, if that makes any sense. Like it, this is what something, this is the thing that's coming natural to you. And I think maybe that that's the important thing about voice is, is what comes naturally to someone. Yeah, I think so. And I think travel is a very good place to find that voice or it works very, very well for me. I mean, I think I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm maybe a memoirist at a first person writer at, at heart and always will Mm -hmm. be. I, I like just illuminating personal moments and trying to make them universal. And I think travel does always give you a special lens on your on your surroundings. And very frequently that lens is kind of projected right back inward, right onto yourself. I think it's the consistent property of travel writing that works that every story, at least the kind of travel writing that I do, kind of leads to yourself. It has to be distinctly about you, but it has to be universal. So you know, we always say it isn't your story, it's the reader's story, but it has to start from somewhere. And I think having the powers of observation, but always also having the powers of detachment are both things that are, you know, that really work for for travel writing and, and work for my voice, I would say, or maybe work isn't isn't for me to say, but it's sort of a property of of my voice. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the, the essays that um, I read in, in your new collection you know, do take on, for lack of better, for lack of a better term, that you know they they feel like they are kind of travel memoir. They have that kind of vulnerability and the, that kind of in, that interior kind of gaze um, that some travel essays don't don't always have. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think so. I I think I think you always have to be ready for some kind of quest, and you always have have to be ready to not have that quest fulfilled. And I, I've definitely found that, I mean, I've spent so much time in Italy in, in my life and there's not an Italy story in this book. 
And that's because I always go to Italy and just have the best time. Like there's no (laughs) personal thing that's happening. There's, I mean, there might be, I may have had like a argument with my kids about getting ready on time, or I may have, you know, missed a plane here and there or had bad weather, but, you know, kind of that inner quest, that, that sense of, of, um, you know, of, of seeking a transformation or seeking clarity, I guess, is what you're always seeking. I, I mean, I don't really write travel stories about vacations that I take mm-hmm. because vacations are like super relaxing or you want them to be, or you want everything to be perfect. Whereas in a, in a travel story, you need some kind of discord um, to have that transformation. You need something that is going to kind of point you back to, to who you are and how you cope with it and what your, you know, what the situation is that you are trying to find clarity on and what the situation is that you're, that you needed to detach from to find that clarity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's not vacation writing, it's travel writing. And by definition, by definition, you know, travel is a burden and, you know, a series of crises or etymologically it is. Um, and so what is writing about a good time. (laughs) Yeah. And I love vacation writing too. I mean, I love reading about, you know, just amazing hotels and things like that, but, um, but, and, and I, I do a lot of those stories actually for the magazines that I write for, which are, uh, you know, I do always try to put in, I don't, you know, like, well, you know, the boat smelled like diesel or, um, you know, the monkeys were covered in, in, in dust from the construction, you know, there's always things that you notice, but in general, an introspective travel story, uh, does to my view, you you know, is at least for this kind of travel writing, it's, it's good to have, to have, I mean, conflict is, is your friend in a travel story, I think. Right. Um, and we're always leaving something. We're always, we're always departing something at home. We're always, we're always leaving some situation. I mean, even if it's, you know, in my case, like broken appliances or, or, um, you know, or family situations or elderly parents or kids that aren't in a, in perfect shape, we're always leaving something and travel just by definition removes you from those those moorings from your situation, from the people you love, um, we're always leaving something. And we, you know, the best travelers are, are people who are searching for something too. Mm-hmm. You're talking here about always leaving something behind and abandonment. And, you know, just thinking back here on the title of your book, uh, you know, hard, a hard place to leave. And the, the question that jumps out to me now in this context is, you know, is there um, kind of any tie that binds these essays, uh, together, you know, have some essay collections are just like kind of randomly pieced together. Um, but other collections of essays have kind of a thread, um, or, you know, something that holds them kind of together. You'd mentioned something about this interior kind of memoir style, um, introspection as being something that kind of connects your essays, but would you say that abandonment and 
leaving things behind might be another kind of link here? Yeah, I do. And it's funny, when I first started putting this book together, I I was thinking, well, I have a lot of stories about angels. I don't know. I believe in angels and I do believe they they have intervened at times. And I don't mean, you know, just to save my life in particular, but I do. There's a story in there about a guy who picked me up in the quicksand of Mont Saint-Michel in the middle of a, a winter storm hmm. and he drove away and and I didn't, and his lights disappeared so fast. I was thinking like, was there really a car? Was there really a man? Was there really a, you know, was there really somebody who delivered me from, from certain destruction? Um, so I was thinking of dividing up the book by, by category, kind of angels, demons, illuminations, darkness, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then it seemed that I really could do this as kind of a, more of a longitudinal reading experience that that it started somewhere and ended somewhere. And I think the thread is that whenever I'm home, I, I want to be away. And when I'm whenever I'm away, I ultimately want to be home. So a hard place to leave is is a little bit of an uh, ironic, right? Because um because why is it hard to leave if you always want to be somewhere else? But I do think we get somewhere and we think I could live here. I'm never leaving. And then you come home and you say, I'm so happy to be home. Right. And what was I thinking? <laughs> you know, it's so hard to travel and security's terrible. And, you know, the, the, the seats, those seats and coach are so small and you're, you know, you're always surrounded by broken cups and potato chip crumbs and things like that. And I'm never leaving again. And five days later, you're like, Okay, I've got to, you know, I got to get out of here. There's so much of the world to see. So I feel like we're often, we're often pulled. I think it's human nature to want to be elsewhere, to want to be somewhere else, to, uh, to be very attached to your home, but to be very attracted by the possibility of elsewhere. And by elsewhere, I don't necessarily mean, you know, you don't have to get on a 20 hour plane ride and end up in Johannesburg. You can, you can, there really are adventures and mysteries to discover and delve into very close to home. So I think the main thing is that, that curiosity is a driving force for all the men and women of the universe and harnessing that can open you up to, um, to all kinds of, of, uh, experiences and, Yet we are also creatures of habit and we like comfort and travel is by definition, not a place of comfort, but home is. And so even, you know, in the stories in the book that take place earlier, there's a story when I first moved to the country, my kids were small in Connecticut, but, um, and I thought, wow, this is going to be the best. Halloween ever, you know, it's we're out in the country and like there's coyotes howling in the background, but of <laughs> course it was freezing cold and you can't walk anywhere. And I was wearing the coat that I was, uh, that my husband proposed to me in, on the, on the, on the streets of Paris. And I was reminiscing about Halloween in Paris. And so, so I think even the ones that are very, even the stories that are, that are very home, you know, I'm a homemaker. I'm I'm with my kids. I'm with my husband. I'm driving to school. I'm very often thinking about 
things that were um, and things that will be elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So recently, the Best American Travel Writing uh, Yearly Anthology called it quits. Um, It seems like now more than ever, publishing essay collections like this is um, is a hard sell, Uh, especially you know, if we're honest, you know, especially essays that are more thoughtful and introspective, right? It seems like yeah. um, the things that sell aren't always the the the, the deepest, right? Um, but so, you know, what were your what were your experiences, uh, you know, putting together and pitching this book? I mean, you mentioned something earlier about you didn't know how to be a writing professional with pitching and querying. And, you know, by this point, a decade in, that experience must be a little bit different. But yet it's still a hard, no, even, even a harder it's sell. Not at all. I still get rejection every day. It's really funny. I, I wrote a story that's going to be coming out in a, in a couple of weeks just on on failure and how much of it I've had. But I just kind of muse on actually how much failure is in this book. I mean, a story that won the, you know, the award for the best travel story of the year, the Solas Award, was rejected 17 times <laughs> or it was published. And it was published in a really cool online magazine called Entropy that doesn't pay, which is fine. But I was just so happy to see it out in the world. It was rejected so much. And so but so so back to your question, um, I you're right these kind of collections aren't, aren't, you know, it's not like waiting for the next, you know, the next John Grisham book or the, right. the next Dan <laughs> Brown book that are, that's kind of natural blockbusters. But, but well, for one thing, um, I didn't use the word essay in the title, it's stories. So hopefully oh, <laughs> stories is less. I mean, essays, <laughs> I, essay is kind of a pretentious word, I guess. It's, it's a little bit, you know, essays, you know, Montesquieu or Montaigne or, yeah. you know, somebody is really, really deep, thoughtful things about the meaning of life. But an essay, I actually really love the essay format. It's like making the most beautiful cake that takes you days and days and days and sometimes weeks. But I, I have a little bit of an attention issue, I would say. And so essays are, are a perfect place for me to work. They're a perfect, uh, it's just, it's like having something in your hands that you're crafting and taking care of and adding a little salt and adding a little butter and, and, you know, taking out a third of it and adding, you know, cocoa powder or something like that. I feel like essays are a really, really interesting place to, to practice as a writer, but I, I don't know really if these sell or not, I think in, in a way, I, I want this also to be a book that's hopeful for women who want to become a writer, who have something that only they can say, and whether it's a travel story or a personal story or a a fiction story that they want to tell. I, I, I do think that we all carry stories and they're all valid and you really just need to sit down and write them, which can be the hardest thing of all. Um, finding the time, finding the, the energy, finding the confidence, not being crushed by <laughs> the tyranny of the blank page, you know, mm-hmm. 
Um, but I, I, I would like to think that anybody can put together a collection like this. Uh, pitching it was a little difficult. I basically just decided to, to, in the end, pitch it to a small press, the publisher of my France book. They're very easy people to work with. They're very smart. They wouldn't just say, oh, yes, we'll do it, Marsha. No problem. They had a lot of questions. I had to do a, a 32 page proposal on why I thought that this would work and why I thought this, that this would sell. I think a lot of the stories in it are also stories that, that will be very universal to, to, to women, whether they have kids or not. It's a lot of the stories about aging, mm-hmm. a lot of the stories about looking in the mirror and not seeing what you think you're going to see. Uh, a lot of stories are about the responsibilities of home and how, how lovely it is to, to, to find a way to shed them. And, uh, and also to know that they are there to come back to. So I, I think that there's a lot of, a lot of femaleness in these stories. And mm-hmm. I think there's a lot that's bittersweet about time passing. And so I hope that it will, the stories will, will, will resonate with a lot of people, if not all of them, um, some of them. I also think that However you travel. I mean, when I travel on my own, I'm a budget traveler, you know, two stars, clean, fine with me. I take buses, I take trains. You know, when I travel for a luxury magazine, it's a totally different story. Mm-hmm. It's always funny, you know, when I come home and I'm like taking <laughs> taking a, a cab to the to Grand Central and taking, you know, a train an hour to my house and thinking, wow, just three days ago, I was in a five-star hotel being served, you know, a seven-course meal. It's sort of funny. But however way you travel, I think it's always good to, to be a little introspective and think about the way you travel. And so I guess I hope that this book will inspire people, I suppose, to engage with themselves a little more when they travel, engage with their surroundings a little more to maybe stop and think of why, why they are on this trip, why, are, why they're on this journey. Is it just to see the vineyards of Tuscany or is it to, to get distance from, from some situation that is, that is overwhelming in your life? Are you dealing with grief? Are you dealing with an empty nest? Are you dealing with, with spiritual issues? Are you dealing with um, issues of inclusivity? Are you dealing with, you know, what is the thing that you are, you know, that, that you are wanting to process? And are you on this journey to, uh, to, to help you process that? Or, you know, to think about, I, I don't think any trip is just a trip. I think a trip is always a quest of some sort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Marsha, let's, go on a crusade and recover the term essay from the literary pretension (laughs) because what you're saying here, it seems like the essay, you know, in the proper sense of the term, right. The weighing of the thing, the testing of the idea, you know, it's, you know, the essay is the proper, the most fitting form to, you know, to, to test what you feel about something and what you think about something. Right. And, to, to flesh out your your thoughts on your own experiences, whether they're traveling or 
traveling abroad or traveling inward, you know, that's the, the proper and the fitting medium for, for doing so, I think. I, thank you. And I love, I love essays. I love writing them. I love reading them. I love editing them. They are, and they're not formulaic, but they are, but I love feeling this bend in the universe when you've come to the end of it, an essay. I love feeling, feeling the curve, feeling the arc, like getting to where this writer needs to be. Um, I'm sorry about best American, uh, about best American travel writing. Is it, I, I didn't actually know that they were, that they were stopping. I think it's, it's really unfortunate, but I also think that maybe the travel essay is just too broad a category. Now I, mm-hmm. I've been reading a lot of things that have been categorized as travel essays. And a lot of them are stories about political conflict elsewhere. Um, you know, there's, I, I, the travel story used to be, you know, I'm going somewhere and this happened and that's that, but very often now they're, they're big economic, political, social, cultural stories um, that that could almost be anything, actually. Um, so it is it is interesting, actually. I've I've noticed that that things that are that might be considered travel writing uh, in the past are. I think the category is, is kind of exploded, and maybe that's maybe that's part of it. Travel is something that happens elsewhere. And it, it used to be just about a journey. Um, but now it can be about so many more things. There's so many more pressing things in the world than, than you know, that right. someone's individual is someone's, you know, individual experience. So, and I wonder if that's a, a byproduct of its success or, you know, if the travel story has been normalized or, or diluted or kind of devolved into irrelevance or something, you know? Well, possibly, but we're also, we're all globalized man and globalized woman Mm -hmm. and people travel a lot and people travel in very, very different ways. I mean, it's interesting. I was just in Poland. I went to Krakow. I was in Europe and I just decided to go to Krakow, a place that I had been years before because I thought I'm, I'm a Russian speaker, actually, and I kind of saw stories of refugees just filling up the streets of Krakow. And I just thought, you know, there's a story there that I can tell. I, I, I can, I can engage with this, you know, I kind of, kind of tried on my hard news shoes again and Mm -hmm. thought I want to go and find a story there. And it's interesting that, and I did go to the border and I saw a lot of, uh, a lot of I would call it unspeakable human tragedy. Um, and so I was thinking there, there was cert- there was surely an essay there. Um, but it, but interestingly, I don't know that it would be a travel essay, but it also could be a travel essay right. because I went to Poland and I saw this situation at the border in Shemesh and Madika. And so, and I have read a lot of stories, even in Best American lately, that were about refugees in, you know, in in Greece or in Italy or in North Africa, things like that. So refugee situations are 
you know, are, are also, you know, confronting these refugee stories or our political stories, their news stories, travel stories, maybe imply something a little more, um, a little more personal and a little, for lack of a better word, lighter. Mm-hmm. Um, even if your travel story is not light. Um, but, but the story that I'm going to eventually write about Poland is, uh, is going to be something else in, entirely. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, on a final note, can you share more about that idea? Well, that's fine. I, it's, no, I, I mean, it, it's funny. I, a lot of times kind of when I teach about travel writing or when I, when I talk about travel writing, I say sometimes a story, and actually when I'm, when I'm on assignment for a travel story, I kind of don't know what the story is going to be sometimes until I sit down and write it or until, <laughs> I mean, right. sometimes until 10 years later, but, uh, but well, I would, I would say the story is going to begin by my returning to Krakow. And the last time I was in Krakow was, uh, was in 1994. I was pregnant and I was, um, I was doing a documentary on the Pope, on Pope John Paul II. And of course, that's basically his hometown. And so I was kind of running around filming a documentary and it was just post-Soviet. And it was, the, you know, there were just big supermarkets and there's all kinds of really exciting things happening. Most exciting thing of all being that the Pope was Polish um, and the people there were very proud of him. And, and I like stories about returns. And this story about return is about uh, an entire culture's dislocation. Um, so I would think it's going to be somewhat like I'm gathering string a little bit, but I do think that my story about return was, was finding this other post-Soviet story that all of a sudden has taken over and changed the entire world. So, so actually talking about it with you is helping me formulate it a little bit. <laughs> So thank you for that because I'm not sure where it's going to go, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, of course, Poland is so, so very tied in with, I mean, it was called the Warsaw Pact, you know, so, so very tied in with the former Soviet Union and the former Soviet empire and look where we are today. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and another thing that, you know, Pope John Paul II had such a very large impact on on the ultimate freedom of his people. And that was, of course, his relationship with President Valencia at the time and, and solidarity and how the, you know, how the revolution happened so peacefully there. And there's this other thing happening next door that is really the exact opposite of that. So, right. so that's, that's a little bit kind of where I might go on that. Mm-hmm. The idea sounds interesting, and I hope we can talk about it someday in the future. So I hope so, too. Yeah. Marsha, thank you so much for your time and speaking with us today. Thanks so much. Thank you very, very much for having me, Jerry. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at TravelWritingWorld.com support. <laughs>